Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers in the field. Wise is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the second in a limited series that tees up the WISE Global Summit that is taking place in Doha and online from the 7th to the 9th of December 2021. The theme of the summit is Generation Unmute, Reclaiming Our Future Through Education. As a global community, we have gone long on ambition, whether it be the 17 Sustainable Development Goals or the aspiration to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. However, more often than not, we have fallen short on execution. Nowhere is this more true than in education, where sadly the sector has struggled to meet lofty aspirations, whether it's the Millennium Development Goal of universal enrollment in primary education, still unfulfilled, or the far more ambitious target of quality education for all, embedded within sustainable development goal number four. Part of the challenge has been that as with many activities in the field of development, it's easier and more convenient to measure inputs. For example, in the case of education, the number of children enrolled in schools, rather than outcomes, whether and what these children are actually learning and to what level. Not surprisingly, therefore, the funding of education is also often tied to inputs rather than outcomes. To say that the results have thus far been underwhelming is to understate the extent of the problem. In 2017, the UNESCO Institute of Statistics estimated that more than one half of children and adolescents worldwide, that's over 600 million people, were not achieving minimum proficiency standards in learning. There is no evidence that this dismal picture has changed in the intervening four years. Efforts have been underway for a few years now to change the basis of funding education in order to put far greater emphasis on learning outcomes. The idea is both simple and elegant. Private capital would be mobilized and put to work supporting education interventions with demonstrable potential to achieve results. Independent organizations would then assess whether or not these interventions were working. Governments would underwrite the whole process and pay out a bond-like return to investors if, and only if, the target learning outcomes were achieved. Now, this brings me to my guest on this podcast. Amel Karbul is the founding CEO of the Education Outcomes Fund, a groundbreaking international effort to change the way that education is funded, particularly in developing country contexts. The effort is championed by, amongst others, Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the UK, and Sir Ronald Cohen, co-founder of Apex Partners, one of Europe's most successful venture capital firms. Prior to taking on her role with the Education Outcomes Fund, Amel held leadership positions at Mercedes-Benz Daimler Chrysler and the Boston Consulting Group. She also served in her native Tunisia as Minister of Tourism from 2014 to 2015 during the country's transition to democracy. She was the first woman to occupy that position and the youngest member of the Mehdi Juma administration. Amel was also a member of the Education Commission, chaired by Gordon Brown. She's the author of Coffin Corner, a book outlining a new leadership culture suited to the complexity and dynamics of the 21st century. During our conversation, we discussed Amel's background in education, the idea behind outcomes-based funding, and the soft launch of the Education Outcomes Fund 
at the WISE Summit in 2017, resistance to outcomes-based funding and what can be done to overcome it, what the experience of trying to solve education challenges can teach us about dealing with the climate crisis, and many more topics. Please join me in conversation with Amal Karbul and be sure to register for the WISE 2021 Global Summit to hear more from Amel and her team at the Education Outcomes Fund. Details, as always, are in the show notes. So, Amel, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you, Stavros. Thank you for inviting me. Um, why don't we just start by having uh, you give a brief introduction to, to yourself and your career and journey so far? Oh, wow. Big question. <laughs> yeah, my name is Amel, Amel Karbul, and currently I'm the CEO of the Education Outcomes Fund, and maybe we'll talk a bit later more about this. It's interestingly, I had a dinner lately with one of our investors and I told him, David, look like you 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 don't see like your life forward. You see red threads backwards, you know? And if I look at all my career, all my big jobs were things where there was an idea out there. So I don't seem to be the person who creates the, <laughs> the first idea, but there were like ideas like just as, a, as on a piece of paper, you know? And then I've been the person taking it and making it real. Funny in enough, almost 25 years ago, my first job at Mercedes was like that. It was like there was one of the big uh, consulting firms there and they left, you know, kind of a PowerPoint that said, innovation management, we have to work differently with suppliers. And then my boss said, look at this, how can we make this real? You know, and I took that and, and, and made it to an institution. And we had, I think, the, you know, five patents between Mercedes and the suppliers together you know, two years later. And it's actually the same now with the Education Outcomes Fund, when, you know, in a conversation with Gordon Brown in, in, in his, you know, as, as leader or chairman of the Education Commission and Sir Ronald yeah. Cohen. And uh, there was kind of this very wild, idea if, you know, how can we use innovative finance to move governments from spending for spending to spending for results in education. Uh, and it was just like a one pager. And, and now four years later, there we are, and, and we are kind of moving into being an institution. So it seems to be kind of my sweet spot in my career. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, you're, you're originally from Tunisia, educated in, in Germany, uh, I guess, in terms of higher education. Yeah, higher education. No, I'm born and yeah. bred in Tunisia and, and I really had the, you know, massive chance to, to, to enjoy Tunisia's public, you know, state school education, which had an amazing quality. But I think at age, you know, 17, I felt Tunisia was too small and I wanted to see the big world and, and, and you know, went to study in Germany. And it was a kind of a purposeful choice as well, because Germany, one has a good, obviously, engineering tradition, but also has a lot of freedom in how you study. I mean, now less, mm -hmm. funny enough, because they introduced bachelor's and master's. Yeah. But at that time, uh, when you arrive in Germany and you start studying, basically, you have to make your own plans. You know, when are you going to do which subject? When are you going to do which exams? You could study engineering anyway between five years and 10 years. You know, like it's, um, it's a massively, it was a massively free system. And I love that because coming from a more French influence system that is very structured yeah. into a, a lot of um, kind of freedom. So maybe freedom and independence is another kind of arc through my life. And then I lived and worked in South Africa and in the US and in Austria. And, and by 20, so kind of went through kind of more corporate and, and big consulting firm, the Boston yeah. Consulting Group. <clears throat> Um, became an entrepreneur. And, and I think that was also an important piece for me because 
I was always attracted by the human side of change. I felt, you know, change at the end is behavior change. It's a human being doing something different. And we, we see this conversation now very acute when it comes to climate change. You know, how, how can we yep. make different decisions? How can we behave differently? And so in, in 2007, that's kind of what where I kind of went on and said, I want to understand how human side of change works. I want to support organizations go through transformation and change in a in a kind of human centric way in a people centric way and and that kind of will bring the success rather than from a technocratic technical way and and so and that that was quite successful thankfully and 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 we had the joy to support you know from from Deutsche Telekom to DuPont to uh, you know World Food Program organizations to to go through yeah. big transformations yeah. and in 2013 I felt like I wanted to do something with stronger social impact. And funny enough, beginning of 2014, I had already booked a flight to go to San Francisco to speak with a big foundation, thinking I'll move to become a chairwoman and uh, chairwoman in my company and, and, you know, kind of venture a bit into the world of, of philanthropy and, and, and social impact and be careful what you wish for in case you get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had this kind of Christmas 2013, that kind of, the red or blue pill moment. I don't know. Do you know the movie The Matrix where, where he of gets course. the red or blue right. pill? So yeah. um, when the prime minister called me and I think he've heard about me having, you know, supported big, large transformations. Um, and he's like, you want to come and build the first democracy in the Arab world? And and he said, you have two hours for your decisions. And and I was, he gave me like tourism as a portfolio, which is 12% of Sunnis' GDP. Um, I think I was the youngest in the government, the first female to do it. And I had also a big role in in kind of the team building aspects of of the government and also kind of the international communication. And so everyone I spoke to in this two hours said, don't do it. You know, you have such a successful career and, you know, you're going to go and fail. This is mission impossible. Um, But I'm so happy I did it because it's it's truly was a red or blue pill moment. And 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 so we, we we succeeded. You know, we had the first elections and we finalized the constitution. Tunisia got the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015. Um, That's right. But since yeah. then, I was I think hooked and and could never go back to just making money in the private sector. You know, I I just um, yeah. positively condemned now for for social change. <laughs> yeah. No. And 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 you know, I mean, lucky lucky for us in the in the in the education space that then. You know, open the door for you to join the uh, the education commission, and then from there, of course, you're now uh, leading the education uh, outcomes fund. So th- let's talk a little bit about the education outcomes fund as a you know as as a sort of innovative way of approaching education finance. So tell us a little bit about how that works, and 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 uh, a little bit about the journey so far, because you you know you've been I know pursuing this for. For a number of years now. Yeah, yeah, four years. And actually, yeah. why in Wise uh, in 2017, I think we can have our, our first kind of soft launch of, 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 of the fund. So there is kind of fund, right. fund memories connected uh, with Wise. Um, I mean, look, why have why are we doing this? You know, I, I mean, I can get, like there are two answers. You know, there is a deeply personal answer because we're talking here about a bit also my trajectory, which is. I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in government, and after government, I was, um, you know, for two years leading the Maghreb Economic Forum, which was like a do and think tank and kind of part of civil society. And I felt 
these big challenges we have ahead of us, which education is one, climate is another, a few others are out there, can only be solved when these three sectors work together. And I felt like they spoke different languages. Often you meet, you know, the same people in government, you see the same people private, you meet the same people civil, but you very rarely meet across. Personally, I, I was looking for a challenge um, that kind of brings all of them. And since I was very engaged in the Education Commission and, and really passionate about education, kind of the idea was how can we do this in education? So our first conversation were around, look, we have a massive, so why are we doing this? We have a massive learning crisis. I'm talking here to the converted, you know, that half of the world children are failing to learn. Yep. You know, over 50% of 10-year-olds can't read and, you know, understand a simple text. And through COVID, this number is probably now around 65%. So uh, this is kind of the biggest silent pandemic of, of our times. And so one is like, can we do something to incentivize the whole system to push for more results? We, we just can't, yeah. you know, continue like that. The second piece of the why is what I talked before is how can we have successful partnership? The traditional PPP, you know, public-private partnerships and more like, you know, it's good to build bridges and infrastructure projects, but governments have notoriously been bad at doing PPPs for, for human capital. Yeah. And so the question is, how can we help governments, you know, create this type of partnerships, which includes contracts, but also kind of the setup of them, uh, the management of them and leadership of them. So that's kind of the second why. And, and the third why was there is a lot of money in, in the capital market. There are a lot of women and young people inheriting big wealth, and they have a different mentality how they want that wealth to make a difference. So while they are still interested in financial returns, they really want their money to make a difference. And how can we kind of bring some of that into the education sector? Those are really the three whys, like more results in a new form of partnership, using kind of a different way of looking at financing, an innovative way to crowd in more private money. And so knowing that for us, you know, kind of governments are the custodians of education, you know, and should stay and and kind of children and young people should be at the center of what we do. And that's how actually the Education Fund Outcomes Fund was created. It is a fund that actually pushes from, we're not spending for spending, you know, most governments, Mm -hmm. foundations, everyone, you know, they have budgets, they have to spend within a budget line. We are spending for results. We, We aim to reach 10 million children and youth, uh, both in learning and in skills. So we have three areas, early childhood, basic education, and and skills to employment. I, I heard yeah. someone using the term learning to earning, which I, I, I like. I may adopt yeah. that term. Um, and we only pay for results once they are achieved. And by doing so, we kind of put the whole system on its head. But maybe I don't need to go into like the technicalities of things. I think we should keep the three uh, wise out there, and that's what we are trying to achieve. But just, um, but just very, very. Uh, I mean, simply, I think the sort of the me- mechanics are that the private sector agrees to fund education, certain education initiatives, certain priorities in these three areas, and then in exchange for that private capital, governments agree to, in a sense, underwrite a. Uh, a bond-like return, let's call it. So it's not about maximizing profits, but it's about ensuring that those private investors receive a fair uh, return in exchange for achieving and hitting certain learning outcome targets. I mean, that's my sort of simplified 
way of understanding it, right? Now, to me, and, and you know, you and I have chatted about this many times, this makes incredible sense. But yet, you and, and you know, and, and, you know, you've had backing from heavyweights, let's say, like Gordon Brown and, um, and, and Ronald Cohen and, and others, um, and yourself, of course, but it's been, it's been an uphill struggle to persuade institutions to adopt this approach. What's, what do you think lies at the heart of this resistance, if you will, to, to a more widespread embrace of you know, outcomes funding? I think deep down is, is a massive mindset shift needed. And, and to be provocative, but maybe also it's a different way of working because if you go today to governments who are so cash stripped and tell them your taxpayer money will only pay for results, imagine that. Because we know a lot how much waste is out there, how yeah. much money we spend on textbooks that never get used or you know, on skills training. The latest number from the World Bank was two-thirds of all TVET and skills programs have absolutely no impact on employment. Zero. You know, so basically we're wasting all this money. And and going actually to a government or to an aid donor or to a philanthropic donor and telling them everything you spend is hundred percent outcomes guaranteed. And I took outcome, not output, no, not like teacher train, like outcome mm-hmm. means children have learning or a young person is employed. In theory, they should be queuing here in front of, of, of our yeah. building, you know, uh, waiting for that. The thing is, it's, it's a completely different way of working. And, and we shouldn't underestimate that governments, a donors, philanthropic, don't buy outcomes. When I say that, it's, it's not only the mindset, you know, they, they spend budgets, you know, and, but it's mm-hmm. also like the technicality. They don't even have the contracts to buy outcomes, which interesting, like to make it very clear now, we're working in Ghana with the government of Ghana who have been amazing. The president, you know, has, has been being a push for education, both education ministers, the previous one, the current one. We, we're working together with the World Bank there. And interestingly, there are contracts to buy services. There are contracts to buy goods. There are no contracts to buy outcomes. And I know this sounds like the boring small details, but if you can't procure something, that can break it. So, so far where we've succeeded is, is been because we have champions like in Ghana, like in Sierra Leone, now in Ethiopia. We're working now in, 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 in Jordan, but also the UK government has been a big supporter where we have champions within government who basically yeah. take on the battle with treasury as well, you know, and are willing to do something different to say, okay, let's, let's push this through the whole bureaucracy. Because the Education Outcomes Fund, let's be honest and humble, is, is only a niche within education. But in a way, what we're doing is we are changing how governments spend money, both in mindset, but also technically. So now we've worked for, so the Education Outcomes Fund is since the year hosted at the United Nations, more specifically at UNICEF. We've worked with two big law firms, the whole legal team of UNICEF for over 12 months now. And now we finalize this type of template contracts where you can buy outcomes. So the UN yeah. now can buy outcomes, you know, but it's been a massive amount of work. And, and once you get that done, you know, the more kind of procurement and technical side of the, you know, on the way, it's obviously also the mindset shift of letting people on the ground decide what is right. And I've been always like, you know, I come from the global South. I've experienced a lot of arrogance from the global North when people came. When I was gov- government minister, some people came and, you know, told me what I should do or told me, oh, we yeah. have this big grant, but we want you to do that. And I would look at them and I say, look, this is my strategy. 
you know, I had the strategy called three plus one, what we want to achieve in tourism. If you're willing to support my strategy with your funding, you're most welcome. It's fantastic. Otherwise, no, because I'm not going to spread myself too thin and miss my strategy. But the question is, you need to have that kind of strength to say no to money um, that kind of derails you from your strategy. And so what we are doing, we say we hold people accountable for results, but we don't tell them what they need to do. Because maybe in this village, you need to work with parents. And the next one, you need to build toilets. Here, you need to coach teachers. You know, we let people on the ground in the villages that are with the children make the decision of what they need to do. And, and some donors, you know, can't handle that. Or like, oh, but tell me what the interventions will be. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're, we're taking people with trust. <clears throat> who have a track yeah. record and giving them the innovation and entrepreneurship. It's almost like from the provide because outcomes funding is different thing for different people from where you see it. And sometimes we struggle to communicate about it because as you said, for governments is kind of a more bond commitment structure where they only pay for results for investors is a way to get financial, but also social returns. But for mm -hmm. the providers on the ground, you know, these NGOs, the social enterprises, also government entities work with the children is actually almost because they get pre-finance from the social investors, almost like unrestricted co-funding, like they get unrestricted funding. Yeah. And if they need to buy a new IT system, then they can. If they need to change completely the way they do the work, because six months into the program, they thought, you know, they're going to do something and they have to do something different and they can, yeah. they don't have to yeah. go back yeah. and change the activity and budget line 7.5, you know, and to yeah. bill for every coffee cup. So it's, it moves from this mentality from show me your receipts to show me your results, your results. which means yeah. you have to let go of control also as a donor. And, and, and that's another mindset shift. So, I mean, we are succeeding and, and, and I'm very grateful that we have these champions all over the world and we hope we will have more, but it's, super super hard you know and yeah. um but that's fine you know i've i've i think i've never done anything easy I, lately i told my daughter like my can i do actually easy i think i can only do hard maybe my next job should be easy <laughs> yeah <laughs> well t tell me a bit um amel about i mean what can we learn do you think from you know the the experience of education and the challenges that that you know, organizations like like yours and others face uh, in actually getting getting people, as you say, to shift from you know receipts to results. What what can that teach us about the climate crisis? Because, and I want to come to your involvement with you know with an initiative to you know to uh, introduce um, education and, and learning solutions for the climate crisis. What, what do you think we can learn from that? Oh, I think definitely a lot. I mean, it, the climate crisis is in front of a, of a challenge where, one, you have a lot of words and little doing. I mean, Paris is, is it six years ago now or seven? Six. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a massive hangover afterwards where, where actually not much happened. And so one, the question, where are the results? And the second piece, it's a very kind of technical I use the word masculine, not for male, but, you know, like kind of a masculine driven movement still, you know, it's, yeah. it's not very people centric, you know, and, and if you look at the NDCs, if you look at the strategies, the human side of it is, is very, very kind of almost inexistent. And while you can maybe achieve, you know, to half a mission 
I mean, I call it with electric cars and solar roofs by 2030 with technological solutions. Latest then when you have to half again to 2040 and then achieve net zero by 2050, you will not achieve this without a massive change in our behavior, with, without a very human and people-centric way to do this. And so with, with a bunch of other kind of amazing people, um, you probably know many of them, you know, Elizabeth Sear, Director of the Education Commission, Suzanne Ehlers, the new CEO of the Malala Fund, um, you know, Wendy Kopp, yeah. you know, founder and CEO of Teach for All, Vikas Pota, who is on, you know, T4, more, more women than men, but also like people like Andreas Fleischer from OECD, et cetera. Yeah. We've been, we've built a kind of a brain trust and we... We, we felt like really now is the time because education has been like kind of the neglected child of the, of the climate movement and all the people and human centric parts. And, and, but we feel without it, we will never achieve those results. And so we came together and, and we thought, okay, this is quite a big subject. How can we, how can we, you know, kind of understand it and how can we develop an, an agenda? And so we worked together for this year with the support um, of the Boston Consulting Group to develop an agenda. So it kind of an agenda setting work where we defined how education can play a role to um, help with the climate and and happy to share more uh, on that. Yeah. And so what what are the, I mean, what are some of the highlights in terms of of what the, the Brains Trust thinks we ought to be focusing on? I think the first one, so we developed, we call them three buckets. I don't know if the word buckets is, is the right thing, but to say like there are three big areas. Yeah. So one, which is climate literacy. So, but we have to be really careful. It's not about changing the curriculum because, you know, you, you can adjust curriculums, but you, 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 because maybe you think it's going to be implemented, but at the end, you end with a school curriculum that is kind of a mile wide, but just an inch deep. And, and it's not really the problem. Like I, I, I've written the number here. I think, yeah, 89%, so almost 90% of OECD countries have, you know, climate in some form of curriculum. I think around 50% of, 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 of the other low middle income countries. But the problem is not that. The problem is that young people say they are not empowered. They don't feel empowered to make a difference on the climate agenda. So it's a form of agency. So you won't solve that with curriculum. So the, the first kind of bucket, which climate literacy, has a very strong focus on climate action projects. And, and people like Kuhn Timmers, I don't know if you've heard of him from there, and they, they're kind of their heroes in that area. I think they've reached millions of children and teachers where... They, they supported school where they take like six week or eight week. They do a climate, you know, action project where children get their hands dirty and define a challenge within their area or context and try to find solutions. Because that's, yeah. I think, that first bucket is really about the agency of young people and also changing a bit the communication because the communication is all about the problems and never about the solutions. So it creates kind of that climate depression and anxiety also among young people. So that's kind of the first part. The second part is the whole green skill agenda. You know, um, today I'm, I'm here yep. in the UK. If you wanted to have a, you know, gas boiler, you have, I think, around almost 100,000, like 80,000 engineers and technicians who can do this. If you wanted to install a heat pump, 750, the whole country. Yeah. So it shows you like we have a massive need to kind of expand on those green skills. Mm-hmm. We need also the people who are going to teach them and et cetera. So that's kind of a big one. But the other piece is also not only that, is also reskilling of people who risk to lose their jobs due to, you know, this climate transition. And, and that's 
you know, from coal miners in South Africa have been on strikes, you know, to other to other people. And that's kind of how are we going to reskill them? How are we going to give them a place in this yeah. new green economy? Because otherwise you will lose kind of popular support for, for these actions. So that's kind of the middle piece, which heavily obviously you have to work with people like ILO and, and with the private sector. And the third one, so it moves from mitigation to adaptation, as you can see. So the third one after the climate literacy and the green skills is is how can we use the power of education more for adaptation, especially for women and girls? You know, women and girls are the most affected by the climate yeah. change, especially in low and middle income countries. And we know that one principally, you know, girls education project drawdown shows is number six, I think, most effective intervention to fight, you know, uh, climate change, but also to give women and girls kind of the tools to thrive in, 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 in a new economy like sub, you know like they they are one of the big drivers behind agriculture uh you know and they can change the way agriculture is done etc so we've we've seen really massive stories and there are you know organizations like camfed and educate girls and others who are like superstars there and so so we define these three areas there are a lot of people who are already active in these areas but there is yeah. no real voice or coordination around you know the kind of you know that brings climate and education together and we've defined few you know, beyond, let's say, catalyzing solutions, few, let's say, policy interventions, or like the idea is to do, for example, a, a climate literacy index, which I think could have a major impact and, and, and an index would just not look at student literacy, but also a system readiness to prioritize and tackle the wider issues mm. like technology, governance, et cetera, career guidance. And we're looking now to, 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 to find founding partners and funding partners uh, to launch some of these activities. No, I mean, it's, it, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, a, a critical topic. And I think, I, I mean, I commend you and the group for, in a sense, taking a very sort of practical and solutions-oriented approach. Because I, I, I think the narrative thus far has been, you know, let's just raise awareness of how serious and catastrophic the crisis is and, and could become if we don't act. But then oftentimes we kind of stop there. And, and as you said, and, and th you know, this has now been been documented, I think, by, you know, a number of surveys and perhaps most recently something that came out of the University of, of Bath and some, some other where they, you know, they polled 10,000, you know, young people from around the world, including, you know, places like uh, Nigeria, the Philippines, you know, India. And there's very real anxiety amongst young people to the point where, you know, I think 40 percent, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or maybe a little bit more are are questioning whether they should even you know start a family because of the you know I mean not not because of a, any sort of personal it's just because of the climate crisis why should I bring you know kids into this world right and and I think you know as as educators we of course we need to speak truth and this is serious but we need to give give hope as well that, you know, the solutions are out there. And, you know, if we get our act together, you know, we, we can make, uh, make this happen and equip young people to play a, uh, an active part. And we have to equip also teachers not to play an active part, you know, to empower them to be yeah. able to teach differently. I think there is a big chance also here to, you know, we've been in education talking for a while about, you know, teaching differently, you know, so especially in secondary schools and 
you know, kind of more project driven, less people sitting and learning things by heart, but more solving solutions and, and solving problems and finding solutions. And actually this intersection, so maybe kind of bringing the climate change in a much more action oriented way could also have an, a positive unintended consequence of also changing a bit how we educate children, yeah. you know, so it could, you know, I, I could see like both sides, you know, being a massive win-win. Um, so, so, you know, how we yeah. teach and how we activate climate could change the way we educate and education can help. And, you know, the first estimates we had around only that first bucket around climate literacy were anyway between like 20 and 37% of lower emissions. That's massive. And and today we're not at all tapping into it because, yeah. you know, the climate people say, oh, anything in education needs 10 years and it's very urgent. We need to do something now. Yeah, I guess if we would have started 10 years ago, we would be now. And and it's, you know, it's so the next best time is today because I want to use it in 10 years. And I think that's also what I miss sometimes in this whole climate movement is is one, this kind of, yes, awareness about the catastrophe is important. So beyond the empowering of young people, also in much long term. So I'm 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 not at COP this year and, and for a purpose because I I, re- I said I refuse. This is what we're doing for me as a long term game. It's a five to ten year strategy where we're going to see results. I don't want to use COP like a Christmas tree where everyone comes and hangs up their things and then nothing happens afterwards. So yeah. I mean, while I'm grateful that Lisbeth Sear and some others are there and the Malala Fund and etc., they're you know doing things. For me, it's I'm a deep believer in in the long run. Is this is a marathon, not a sprint, and and we need to find the right people to support us. Uh, run this and and bring really kind of you know we I heard some critiques saying oh that you know people pushing us is this like because a lot of us are women and you know pushing us oh this is like the soft female approach the people centric approach to climate and I was like this is a compliment this is not a critique you know yeah. I mean it's great <laughs> yeah and, 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 and I think you know the the other the other uh, commonality with with education which I think you 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 alluded to when you were describing. You know, the approach of the Education Outcomes Fund, you know, to sort of allowing people around to, you know, you know devise, devise their own priorities and, 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 and you know, focus, focus on, on kind of what kind of works. works. Whether, you know, whether it be, you know, you improving know, sanitation or, you know, you know a, different a different text, text right? Right. Uh, I think, you know, I think the climate crisis, again, is, is not going to be solved by doing one or two big things. It needs lots and lots and lots more. Changes and adjustments, adjustments, you know, that, you know, that, you know everything, everything from, from you, know, you know, I don't know, I don't know agriculture, agriculture to, to to zoning for for, for you know, building you know, building constructions and and, and, and everything in between is going to need to to fine fine tune to change. change. That again, and that again, and, and, that's, and that's where I think, where I think the, the the education, education approach. approach needs to, you know, shine, shine a spotlight, spotlight on, on, that. on that. So also as a means of identifying here, here all the opportunities to actually, actually make a difference. As you said, you know, heat pumps, pumps versus, versus gas, gas boilers. boilers. Right? Triple, triple glazing. glazing. That's another, another one, one that, that, you know, yeah. that, that can, that can, be, you know, can be, be done. Be done. Yeah, people, don't people don't think about, think about this. They, 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 their mind immediately goes to, oh, I, you know, I need, I need to you know, switch to electric, 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 electric car, car. I've got to stop flying. flying. You know, I've got to go vegan. vegan. Right, right. But there's kind of, there's a whole bunch of things you do before you get to the sort of drastic solution that, again, we don't spend enough time talking about. Because it's not, it's not, dramatic. It's not dramatic. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, how the many small yeah. steps that that bring you somewhere. Yeah. And I think the other piece, which mm-hmm. is a commonality, I think we have to hold governments more accountable. 
Yeah. You know, both for education and for climate, you know, and, and I think that, that there is an intergenerational inequality, uh, which we saw, you know, during COVID basically, you know, to save the lives of, of you know, say older generation, we sacrifice quite a bit for young generation. And I speak here from personal experience, you know, both my daughters, teenagers, um, mm-hmm. having been, you know, stuck for seven months or more, you know, within a room in front of an iPad has had massive mental health you know, kind of consequences and, and, yeah. and, and it's a pandemic. It's not just us, you know, I mean, it's, you know, anecdotally from a lot of parents, but, but kind of statistically you can see it as well. And so, and it's the same with education, same with climate. So the question for me is how can we hold governments more accountable? How can we have youth voices hold the government more accountable yeah. for, for both crises? And, and, and for me, like what we're doing with the outcomes fund is, a way of proxy regulation in a way, because when you only pay for results once they're achieved and you design this well not to have unintended consequences, etc., you basically incentivizing everyone, pushing everyone to, to kind of think differently and to deliver better for citizens. I, I do really feel we massively have to hold governments more accountable for, for results. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And and I think you, you also bring up a, the, the youth perspective on decision making isn't really coming in into play. And even as you rightly pointed out, we saw this with the pandemic where not a whole lot of time was spent thinking about, you know, what is the you know, lockdown and school closures going to do to, to kids, right? Both from a sort of learning loss perspective to of course the mental health issues. As as you know, this year's, you know, wise summit, we're going to focus on what we call it generation on mute, you know, reclaiming our future through through education. And really the focus is on young people and and helping them gain voice, if you will, in into these discussions. And you know, I wanted I wanted to ask you what, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, how how do we get young people to have more agency and to have a greater say in uh, in decision making, I mean, beyond tokenism, right? Beyond inviting, you know, Malala and and, and Greta to address the UN, and you know, how do you actually get, you know, get them to a place where they feel they're they're making a difference? I think, I mean, obviously, probably starts early. You know, what we talked about in education and, and this kind of different communication that we need. One, not just the catastrophe, but showing there are solutions, so giving hope, but also kind of empowering them. And, and giving an you know, education that is not about sitting and listening, but about kind of proactively, you know, taking role and having agency. And I think, you know, definitely we've we've done some of that. I definitely think we should reduce, but, you know, it's my personal opinion, you know, voting age. Uh, I do feel like, you know, we needed, you know, sometimes quota for, for women's, uh, you know, uh, places in parliament, etc. I'm a big believer on quota, by the way even if some, some people are very critical and, and they say, oh, you have, I want to be good. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm good. And still I didn't have a seat at the table. So, you know, if you wait for, for a social change to happen by itself, it just takes too long. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I agreed to have like voters for young people in parliaments and, and, and governments, uh, you know, et cetera. So, and, and at the decision-making table. So I think that's, that's really, I believe sometimes we need, you know, kind of almost the law to push things sometimes further ahead than they are because I use this example of my children and 
toothbrushing. I say like, if I would wait until they intrinsically motivated to brush their teeth, you know, every <laughs> evening, um, that will probably never yeah. happen. And and so yeah. there is a way of bringing structure, being there and asking them to do it every night, et cetera, et cetera, until it becomes yeah, kind of a healthy habit. And so there are things that I don't think, you know, people intrins- will wait for them intrinsically motivated to involve youth more. I do believe we need kind of more structural and, 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 and you know, kind of policy decision around that um, to, to, to bring their voice. And, and to be honest, COVID and how we are dealing with the climate crisis has rather increased, you know, their anxiety, you know, their depression, their, their sense of helplessness and hopelessness, which, which is not good for anyone. I believe maybe today's children in kindergarten would probably grow up to a different world where, like, you know, electric cars and home and capture technology will be there. But I'm talking more about, you know, upper secondary who are actually the young people who will have to kind of do the transition, you know. Um, yeah. And these, uh, how we can empower them more. It's, it's, and and I, I don't think it's just young people. I think it's also young people from, like, the poor, marginalized parts, either in our any society, you know, even in high-income countries, you know, even in France or in the UK during the pandemic, you know, there were many children and young people who didn't have access to internet. And and we're not talking just low-income countries. Uh, and and how can we give kind of more, help them have more voice? And, and I think another narrative from the climate, we talk about changing from catastrophizing to solution, another narrative that has to come, the rich will have to pay. We will have to pay for the climate things, you know, and, yeah. and that's someone has to say it, you know, and it's not said loudly enough. You know, the rich in terms of country who are emitting more, the rich in terms of parts of society who are emitting more. If we don't get the rich to pay for the climate, you know, change and transition, it will not happen. You cannot ask the poor and marginalized who produce the least, have the most kind of live to live most of the consequences to pay for it. And that's the new narrative that we need. And, and that's a narrative you will get yeah. a lot of popular support. I'm not being populist. I mean, this is factual yeah. that needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's interesting because you've, you've brought in the ethical dimensions of, of the climate crisis. And one of the things that I've often advocated for and have written about is that we, we need to reintroduce the, the study of ethics in our education system, and and of course, do it in a do it in a way that that doesn't moralize. Meaning, you know, it's not about giving people a set of you know, thou shalt and thou shalt not, but really teaching them about how do you about the processes for thinking ethically in order to resolve difficult dilemmas, like for example, who should pay for climate adaptation and mitigation, right? What is what is fair in this context, right? And and to have that, you know, to have that debate, because it's not always self-evident, you know, what what is the, the, the fair uh, thing to do and, and why is, you know. And, and it's it's as much, in my view, a generational thing as it is a, a, a sort of geographic and, and a class issue. Um, and also the cross-sectoral mm-hmm. issue, I would say, you know, like yeah. in a way, if you look at COP this year, you know, it's, you know, kind of civil society and, and, and people from the global south didn't have as much space, you know. I will never remember there was an event which wasn't climate. There was this big supporting Syria conference in London a few years ago when different heads of states came together to, to discuss how we can support and lots of pledges were done. 
And, and it was interesting because I, I was there as, as in, in my current role and I spoke about how we want to move, you know, corporate social responsibility, mm. like CSR to corporate social responsibility to corporate social results. But anyway, so it was interesting. So I was guided and ended up in the probably most fun room, but it was a room where, where you know, you had the executive director of, you know, UNICEF and, and you know, the children and so the, all the kind of civil society third sector, UN agencies were in one room. And the heads of government were separate room and the private sector were in separate room. And you only, like, you could enter, like, the big thing to do your speech and then go out and end up in that room. And that was, like, shocking for me because Mm. I was like, wow, like, you know, like, in these conferences, the real dialogue doesn't happen in the conference. These real dialogue, you know, it's like twice, you know, happens, you know, between the meetings. But it was, like, almost hermetically put in different rooms. And I thought where you cannot kind of interact between each other. And I thought, wow, you know, like if I was in government, I would probably be in another room. And and that happens too often that, that we are kind of hermetically isolating the CEOs of our big companies, the heads of states from kind of engaging with young people, engaging with civil society, engaging with forces of society physically, basically. And so that kind of it doesn't happen. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and you know, I, I know you know this from having, uh, you know, attended WISE a few times that we, we, we try very hard to, to have that mixing. But, you know, it, it, it's not easy because people get, you know, get very status conscious and they, it's like, you know, who else is on the panel with me and I'm, you know, right? Am I, you know, <laughs> you, you get into, so, you know, d- despite everyone's, uh, I, I guess, good intentions, what, what, you know, tends to happen is kind of ego takes over a bit and it's like, okay, why, you know, why am I not sitting with the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the CEO or the president or, or whatnot. But, uh, Anyway, at least from, you know, from a wise standpoint, we, 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 we see a great deal of value actually in having president of, or prime minister from country uh, X, you know, meet a, you know, a teacher or a civil society activist or a young person from country Y, right? Amel, I want us to, to end because we're coming up to the, the hour mark and I, it's been a great, great conversation, but I want us to end on a on an optimistic note, because I, you know, we, we, <laughs> it's been a very somber and, and sort of sobering conversation. So what, what are some of the most kind of hopeful things that you are seeing? You talk either in the education or the climate space or the intersect between the two that you, you want to share with, with, with listeners. No, I mean, definitely, I mean, the, the, the massive thing that gives me hope and drive is that there are a lot of, let's say, impact leaders out there. You know, there are more and more people who, in different places of society, who um, want to make a difference and are making a difference. And actually, I'm, 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 I've just finished a book about impact leadership and, and, and how you can, you know, with the different thinking, and it's called pomegranate thinking, which, you know, the pomegranate has, has a strong implication in my own life. But how you can kind of with a different way of thinking and leading, um, which is much more human centric and much more kind of connected to different parts of society, bring change. And, you know, I talk about organizations like Zipline, you know, who, who uses drones to bring, you know, medications in rural areas. You can, mm-hmm. you know, you have the Andalas of the world, you have the Fred Swanickers of the world who are like in social enterprises who are really kind of changing and bringing actually 
you know, innovation from the global south, so the opposite rather than from the global north, you know, changing the face of education, changing the face of mobile payment, all these things. Uh, but also like big corporates, you know, gives me hope there are now, you know, Novartis and others have, you know, uh, issued big bonds uh, where, you know, the kind of what you pay decreases if with the level of social outcomes you achieve, you know, what you pay in return. So yeah. kind of, and, and now it's, I think, around $200 billion already invested in that, something that didn't even exist a few years ago. And, and so I think there is, while there is a lot of greenwashing and all that, there are true kind of leaders from, from all sectors. You know, there are governments, of, you know, like David Sanger from Sierra Leone, which you talked about, who, who, you know, kind of stands there and says, we are failing our children and I know we're not changing and we don't know how to solve this. I'm willing to do an education innovation challenge where I try different things and see what works at what price. And then I'm yeah. willing kind of to, to scale what works. And so... In a way, in my book, you know, I, I, I talk about these different people and what and, and how they're driven by a strong why. And so I, I do believe that 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 gives me hope because um, because I think it's there are solutions out there and, and, and we just have to continue, you know, kind of bringing them on and surround ourselves with people who, when having to choose between what is maybe right and what is easy, choose what is right. Um, yeah. and, and, and in that community, and I think WISE also offers a place for, for space for that community to kind of continue the, uh, the, the fight together. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that's a, that's a great, uh, great place for us to, to end. And I'm, I'm going to look forward to, to the book when it, when it comes out, when, when is it coming out? So next summer, hopefully next summer. All right. Well then, then you have a, an invitation then to come back on onto the podcast and talk about the book. Okay, fantastic. No, thank you. So I will definitely do that because my publisher always like, I never talk about the book. And it's like, you have to talk more about the book. And I was like, okay, I will, I will. It, it, when it's now finished and it comes out, we'll talk more about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll look forward to that. Amel, great, great having you on, on Wise Words. Thank you, Stavros. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. We're excited to kick off an all-new season of Wise Words, now in action, Unmute Education. So be sure to keep an eye out on our social media channels to know when our next episode in the series comes out very soon. We'll be regularly publishing new episodes which aim to unmute some of the most pressing education topics and trends in the lead-up to the 2021 WISE Summit taking place in Doha, Qatar and virtually online between 7 to 9 December 2021. For more information, check out the links in the description. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time on WISE Words.